Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. My 17-year-old granddaughter recently insisted that we go to a diner in L.A. that she had been uh, familiar with for some time because she said, I would like it because it's family-owned. Such is the pervasiveness of corporate culture today that even a teenager can appreciate the nuance of small family ownership. Without even being judgmental, it's safe to say that there's not a crevice of our culture today that hasn't been corporatized. Food, coffee, service, music, movies, and even sex. Where once even strip clubs had a unique and individual identity, fulfilling a wide range of fantasies, today even they have become Disneyfied. That's the story in the world that my guest Jessica Burson writes about in her new book, The Naked Result. Jessica teaches dance studies at Yale. She previously taught dance and drama at Harvard, Wesleyan, and the University of Exeter. She received her Ph.D. in theater and drama at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It is my pleasure to welcome Jessica Burson here to talk about The Naked Result, How Exotic Dance Became Big Business. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Talk a little bit about how this subject really came to fo- into focus for you, this corporatization of, of really the world of strip clubs. Yeah, I would say it came into focus when I was working as a stripper. Um, I was finishing my dissertation um, at Madison, but I was living in New Haven at the time and needed to figure out some way to pay the rent. Um, and I started working at a club called Backstage Bills in New Haven, which was like the diner your granddaughter took you to a uh, family-owned <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> um, it was a family-owned, with a mom and pop kind of strip club. Um, and after I worked there for a while, I then ended up working at a big corporate club in Hartford. And the differences between the two is sort of what got me thinking about this area of research. And talk a little bit about what were the obvious differences. Well, some of the differences that were the most glaring, I mean, pretty much as soon as you walk into the place, um, you know, there's a difference in the layout, there's a difference in the decor, um, there's a difference in the dancers, there's a difference in the clientele. So, you know, one of the most uh, obvious differences was in terms of diversity. So at the first club, the kind of mom and pop club, there were dancers of pretty much every different body type you can imagine, different ages, uh, different ethnicities, different races, um, people from all over the place, um, and a lot of different dance styles, too, which is something that was particularly interesting to me because I was doing a PhD in dance studies. Um, at the corporate-owned club, every single dancer, except for a few, was about you know 22 years old, with shoulder-length light brown hair. You know, everybody was about the same. Um, and the clientele was, was much more homogenous as well. And is this something that has become, as far as your research tells you, has become more pervasive, corporations coming in and, and either buying up existing clubs or really spreading, you know, their clubs like Starbucks around the country? It's exactly like that. And they, um, they actually explicitly follow the kind of roll-up model, right, where the club chain club can go in and roll up independent clubs into their own brand. Um, there's a club called Rick's Cabaret, which is a, a very large chain, and they actually have lots of different subsidiaries. But um, the CEO of that, Eric Langan, has, has said that that's the business model, is to go and kind of um, consume, <laughs> eat up all of these small independent clubs, um, and one of the reasons is that you can then use, you can get grandfathered in on their 
um, regulatory status. So if there's a club that already has a liquor license or already has a new dancing license, the chain can benefit from that if it takes it over. Talk a little bit about the ownership of these chains. Who are the kind of people that, that have gone into this business and, and how has it become corporatized in that sense? I think from, you know, from what I learned, it seems like the, the several of the guys that I, that I looked at who are owners of these big chains really held up people like Ray Kroc as their models. Hmm. Um, Ray Kroc, who founded McDonald's. Right. Um, they had this idea about turning an illicit business into a, you know, into an acceptable mainstream business. Um, so, you know, Eric Langen, who I just mentioned, uh, made his first, I think like $40,000 by selling his, um, baseball card collection when he was 20 uh, and bought his first, his first strip club with that money. Um, so they all have a kind of, um, entrepreneurial narrative that is familiar, I think, from lots of other businesses. They don't see themselves as, um, you know, criminal masterminds or anything like that. They really see themselves as legit businessmen. And talk about the layers of management within these organizations, the, the, the difference between the people working in the club and how close they get in terms of management to, to the people that actually own it. Is, is there any kind of contact that takes place? I think it really depends on the club and it depends on the situation. In general, I'd say probably not. Um, the people who are at the up, you know, it's like when you work at Starbucks, you don't meet Howard Schultz, right. you know? Um, I think it's a very similar sort of thing. So there's multiple levels of management, um, and depending on the size of the chain, the managers may themselves be in contact with the owners, but very often not. Um, my impression with Eric Langen was that he is, you know, he's living a very kind of rarefied, uh, fancy existence where he doesn't actually have to deal with most of those people at all. Tell us a little bit about the rules and the structure in these corporate-owned strip clubs and, and how different it is from the independent ones. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that has actually been coming up uh, in, there's been a whole series of class action lawsuits against some of these chain clubs recently by dancers saying that they are actually employees, not independent contractors. Uh, which is a big distinction because if you're an employee, you have to get at least minimum wage, you have to get some kind of health insurance and all of that. Um, and the reason that they're claiming that status is because of the way the clubs micromanage their work. So rules include things like um, you have to wear six inch heels. So you can't wear five inch heels, can't wear seven inch heels, gotta be six inches. Um, you have to have your hair a certain way, you have to wear certain types of clothes. Um, it goes to things like um, when you talk to a customer in the first three minutes, you have to find out his name and use it three times. Um, so almost every aspect of the way that dancers interact with customers and also the way they perform on stage is, is then regulated and prescribed by the management. Talk a little bit about how the customer base is different, what you've seen in that regard. You say it's more homogenized. Yeah, I mean, class plays, you know, plays into this too. The chain clubs, not all of them, but most of them are aiming for this kind of gentleman's club model. Um, so the clientele tends to be wealthier, uh, more businessmen type of, um, type of groups. Um, and often it's, you know, it's a group of business guys out together. Um, so there's an element as well of 
customers kind of performing for one another um, at, at clubs, which is different, I think, in the independent clubs. Um, certainly in the, you know, in the smaller mom and pop clubs that I worked at and, and went to to observe, the clientele was a, just a much bigger mix of people. Um, occasionally some women, um, not often, but definitely sometimes some women. Um, but, you know, we would get guys from the local colleges coming in and then sometimes professors from the colleges <laughs> coming in. Um, people who were, you know, we had one guy at the first club that I worked at who had been in the NBA and was a social worker now. And he came in almost every night because he just needed a break. But he was this incredibly uh, generous, altruistic guy. Um, so I don't know if that gives you a sense, but like right. it's a range, you know. Talk about what's different, and you talk about this in The Naked Result, what's different for the dancers, the, the idea of more freedom of expression in the independent clubs? Yeah, and I think, you know, with, I, I have encountered uh, occasionally when I talk about this project, people saying, well, isn't it safer at the chain clubs, at the corporate clubs? And, you know, it probably is um, in some ways. So I want to just let that put that out there so that people don't think I'm, you know, completely bashing the corporate clubs, but certainly in terms of freedom of expression and um, chore choreographic uh, leeway and the types of performing that you might want to do, much, much more freedom at an independent club. Um, as I said, like chain clubs, they will specify what kind of moves are okay and what kind of moves aren't. So sometimes they'll say, you know, we don't allow any floor work at this club. Um, some clubs don't allow pole work. Um, and, you know, dances have to be exactly this length. And then, you know, on the first dance, you take off this article of clothes, and the second, you take off that article. So it's very prescribed. Whereas at an independent club, at least in my experience, kind of anything went. Um, and there was a fair amount of eccentricity and playfulness. Um, and humor involved in a lot of the performances. How successful are these clubs, the corporate clubs, how successful are they as a business? Well, it kind of depends on which club and who you ask. Mm -hmm. um, they very often will claim, I think, more uh, higher revenues than they actually have. But, um, you know, I think from what I remember, you know, it's a, it's a billion dollar industry. Um, overall, the independent clubs make up just the tiniest little fraction of that. And the independent clubs are not raking in lots of money. Um, but ironically, at least in my experience, as a dancer, you had a better chance of making money at an independent club because they were not going to be the, the chain clubs will have like, you know, 50 dancers a night. Mm -hmm. um, so there's just tons of competition, whereas at the independent clubs, there's a little bit more sense of everybody being in it together, you know, and everybody trying to get by. With the corporate clubs, is there a sense of, you know, not unlike Starbucks, as we were talking about before, of wanting to make them all the same, to make the experience yeah. the same, so that if you go to a club in, in New Haven, it's the same as, you know, a similar club you might go into in Bridgeport or something? That's, that's exactly right. Um, and they are explicit about it. I mean, in the book, I've got quotations from um, some people who work for Spearmint Rhino, which is another one of these very big multinational chains, saying, you know, the whole point is that it's like a McDonald's. If you go to the 
Spearmint Rhino in Tottenham Court Road in London, and you go to the Spearmint Rhino in Moscow, and you go to the Spearmint Rhino in you know Buenos Aires, it's going to be the same experience. That you will feel comfortable, and you'll feel like you understand what's going on. Um, it's going to be the same, you know, leopard print wallpaper, <laughs> the, same, uh, the same decor, and they're going to, to whatever extent they can, make the make the dancers look the same as well. Mm-hmm. Is there something inherent in that that's kind of antithetical to the idea of these kind of clubs, that, that part of them is about the mystery and the excitement and the, the, the interesting aspect of, of going to them. And if they're all the same, it somehow loses that, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the point of the book. Right. Yes, I think so. And I think it, it extends bro- more broadly to uh, kind of the corporatization of our ideas about sex um, and intimacy and eroticism, even beyond a strip club. I'm kind of looking at strip clubs as a symptom of a, of a larger issue. Um, yes, I think if, you know, the place that is supposed to be where you play out fantasies about desire and intimacy, um, if that place is a kind of sanitized space that you know exactly what's going to happen and exactly who's going to be there and even even something like the conversation, I mean, a lot of guys go to strip clubs really to talk to, to women, not mm-hmm. to even, you know, see women dancing, but um if, if, the, if you know the, if the woman you're talking to is going to use your name three times in the first three minutes, it's, it really takes the, it takes the mystery out of it completely, as far as I'm concerned. It sort of puts in, it replaces, you know, the pleasure of that mystery with the pleasure of consumer culture. And for the customers, do, do they like the, the corporatization of it? Do they like the fact that it's familiar in every place? I, you know, I have a feeling it's the same kind of phenomenon. Like if you go and you ask people at Starbucks, do you like that this is, that you're at Starbucks and that everything is, you know, the same as the Starbucks across the street, they probably haven't thought about it too much. It's just the way it is. Um, I think so. I think for a lot of the customers at these clubs, they haven't given it a lot of thought. It's kind of been slid in uh, and they, they accept it. I don't, I think if you started questioning them about some of these issues, they would maybe raise an eyebrow, maybe think, oh, no, I don't actually like this that much. Um, I think what they like at the at the big sort of gentlemen's clubs is the sense of excess. You know, it's it has, um, I mean, not to bring Donald Trump into it, but it has <laughs> they, a, lot of those clubs, a lot of those clubs have a kind of Trumpian sense of luxury, right? So like things are painted gold and there's chandeliers and there's um, a, a, like intimations of luxury, even if it's not actually luxurious at all. And I think sometimes customers really like that, that that feels good to them. Are communities more accepting of these clubs when they're run by these corporate enterprises? They are, definitely. Um, yeah, I think... I, you know, in one of the chapters in the book, I talked about uh, the, the way Risk Cabaret entered New York City uh, post Giuliani, and you know, despite all of the efforts that the Giuliani administration had made to clean up the city and get the sex the sex uh, industry out, um, this big chain club from from Texas shows up and was was actually completely accepted because it was. It, it was traded on the NASDAQ. It was uh, something they could recognize as a corporate entity. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely think it increases the, it kind of greases the wheels in the community for sure if it's something that 
seems more like McDonald's than, you know, than like some terrible strip club out of some 70s movie. Right, and and also the sense that, that nothing terrible or evil or bad is going to happen in any of these places because there, there's accountability to shareholders right. or, or owners or whatever the case may be. Exactly, and it, and it kind of cleans up the idea that there's involvement in organized crime, which it turns out not to actually be true. I mean, there's organized crime involved in, in chain clubs sometimes as well as in independent clubs sometimes, but um, it definitely makes everybody feel safer about it for sure. Are they safer? I think they probably are to some degree. Um, you know, it's felt, I think it feels, as a dancer, it feels a little bit more like there's just more, there's more manager type people around to have their eye on you. Um, and that the the codes, because there's all these codes of behavior, you can sort of predict a little bit more, I think, how the, how the customers are going to behave. Um, in reality, I mean, I read plenty of stories about really crazy bad stuff happening at chain clubs, too. So I don't think it is safer, but it definitely feels safer. As a result of more and more of these corporate clubs, is it driving a different kind of customer to the independent clubs that are still left? I think it probably is. I think, um, you know, my impression is that the people going to the independent clubs are sometimes people kind of uh, escaping those, co- those corporate clubs, people who, who want something um, more interesting, more unpredictable, um, who, you know, might you know, might otherwise be going to see some, <laughs> some experimental or avant-garde theater thing, but, you know, like, that's where they find themselves for the night is at the Independent Strip Club. Um, you know, it has a different a different feeling depending on where you are. When I was doing research in London, there's the, the Independent Strip Pubs in London also just serve as places where people go to hang out. Um, and it almost, for some people, doesn't really matter that there's this other stuff going on. But, um, but in the U.S., I think, yeah, it is starting to attract a different group of people. Um, I think, you know, some more younger people are going to the independent clubs. Um, I think more women now are going. Um, yeah. Are the independent clubs dying out as a result? Very much so. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, when I was finishing the book, I thought, oh, I should, I'll, I'll go back to Backstage Bills and I'll, you know, that's where I'll finish. I'll sort of talk about how it's changed in the years since I worked there. And it has been bought up by a chain, hmm. you know, <laughs> that's like the, the sort of narrative of the book actually happened to the, you know, the one place that I had any, uh, any connection to. Um, yeah, I think that there are very, very, very few of them now. And um, the, the chain clubs, you know, just the way, you know, Barnes and Noble would sort of open up in an area where they're already, small bookstores and the small bookstores would close down that that's kind of the same thing that's going on with with strip clubs are the the new corporate clubs expanding rapidly is there more and more demand well again it kind of depends where you are um there definitely seems to be in certain parts of the u.s i mean texas can't get enough strip clubs you know like there could be one on every block and they'd still have more um other places, um, New York, you know, as I said, New York City had lots of very kind of uh, rigid regulations about, about the sex industry, and those are beginning to kind of fall down. So there's, there is a demand in New York, too, and that's kind of being fulfilled by these chains. Um, in the U.K., there was this insane expansion um, for about five years, and 
you know, I think it went from like 50 clubs to, you know, 400 or something in the, in the country. And there was a backlash and they actually have recently changed the, the licensing laws. And so a lot of those clubs are now having it closed. So it, it kind of depends. Jessica Burson, the book is The Naked Result, How Exotic Dance Became Big Business. Jessica, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you.